0: The Academic Podcast Agency.
1: So we are just about to board the 5.40am train. It's the culmination of a two-week debate in Paris to keep global warming within the two degrees Celsius that scientists have decided is the absolute maximum the planet could take without catastrophic consequences. So we're, we're going to stand up and have our, our voices counted and be part of the movement that is letting uh, the governments know that, that we want action on this issue. Hi, my name's Laura and I'm 32 years old and I'm a music teacher from Brighton. But it's really hard to know where to start because it's everywhere. You know, the the stuff that's making climate change happen is in our kitchens and it's on the street outside in the road, in the cars. It's everywhere. I, I think that one of the reasons people aren't acting so much is because we all know that we're all doing it.
2: Do you consider... Us attending being direct action. Is it direct action? I don't consider
1: it a direct action. No, I, I consider that just protesting. But I suppose protesting, you could say it's a form of direct action. Personally, I thought direct action would be something a bit more full-on. like the ab sailors on the bridge to stop the machinery and equipment from shell actually physically getting to the Arctic. It's kind of like blockadia, as Amy Klein calls it. Yes,
2: yeah. And do you think that's justified? Do you think breaking the law is justified? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah.
2: Is that something you would do? Well,
1: I'm going to go on record to say that I'm going to break the law. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what, what would you do and to stop what from happening? Hypothetically, I mean...
1: Well, I, would, I don't know if I want to say this on record well, because I would probably go if quite far being, yeah, what if, would you if, if I thought it was actually going to make a difference.
2: The 12th of December 2015 marked the end of the COP21 climate summit. On that day, myself and good friend Laura Luard took to the streets of Paris along with an estimated 15,000 people to express civic concerns about the management of global warming by 195 world leaders. The COP21 summit translates to the 21st Conference of Parties, that has met every year since 1995 to discuss ways in which global heads of state should be addressing the problems of climate change. So this episode of The Glass Beat Game is concerned with the efficacy of direct action. What role does the individual or the NGO have in such important political arenas? And what is acceptable behaviour if your elected officials aren't implementing the changes you perceive to be essential?
0: The time through which we are now passing is of exceptional character. This is The
3: Glass Bead
1: Game.
4: The Glass Bead Game!
3: My dear friends.
4: It's four.
1: Investigate!
3: Investigate! Add the it's the only thing in history that has been effective to challenge the status quo. The only thing that has ever worked is when someone stands up and says no. And this goes back for thousands of years. Go back to Gandhi, uh, the suffrage movement, women's rights, civil rights. Those rights were only achieved because someone was willing to break the law. My name is Rex Weiler. I've been a journalist and an ecologist for 45 years. I was involved in the creation of Greenpeace in the 1970s.
2: I mean, this is what Greenpeace is really known for, isn't it? Can you tell me what direct action is and and what it means to you? The idea of direct action, I think, is something
3: most people are actually, if they think about it, are familiar with. If you're walking down the street and you see a kid crying on the street and there's no, no, no adult there taking care of them, most people will stop and try and help that kid. That's direct action. I mean, we see pictures of people starving around the world. We see pictures of, of famine, a crisis, or when there's a tsunami. We know that people are suffering halfway around the world. We send money, we send clothing, we send goods. Why? That's all direct action. When you see a problem, you see something that's unfair and not right... It's a natural instinct. Because we're pack animals, we're not really individuals. We're primates. We're pack animals. We have an instinct. Nature gave us an instinct to protect our own kind and to respond if somebody's weeping or crying or somebody's suffering or pain because that pain reflects out into our entire community. So it's a natural human response to... Avoid suffering in others.
1: Greenpeace are
2: amazing. Why are they amazing? Why are Greenpeace amazing?
1: Because of all the incredible direct action that they do and have been doing for years. Like, I mean, what they do is its really radical. It's so brave to buy a boat and just go and literally stand in the way of people doing really terrible stuff.
2: Do you think they've changed the world in the last 20, 30 years?
1: And I do think that Greenpeace have been an incredible voice of sanity. They have stopped bad things from happening, like the drilling of the Arctic, for example.
3: The problem with the action that we have to take is we want solutions that are convenient to us. What kind of solutions are convenient to us? Oh, maybe we can make electric cars, or maybe we can get a new kind of light bulb or perhaps we can insulate our homes a little bit better and we call that being green. And and the problem is is that it's not remotely green. Climate change, global warming, and toxins and then the other problems that we're facing are symptoms. And they're symptoms of of the fact that humanity has overshot the capacity of the planet. You know the conflict between economics and ecology is really a conflict between greed and ecology. We could have an economics that was ecologically sensible. If we don't do that, all of our plans, all of our economics, all of our goals, all of our political goals, social goals, they they all will collapse. Be, simply because we did not pay attention
2: to the way nature works. What is anti-capitalism? Do you consider yourself to be anti-capitalist?
1: Well, I am and I'm not because uh... Capitalism is not the system that I would like to see in place. I would definitely want something that's less about money. But um, at the same time I am, because I still buy stuff that I don't need. And actually, probably there's, there's lots of people in my life who um, make a lot better decisions about you know where they shop and what they consume or don't consume. The trouble is is that most people in their lives, they're really stressed and really busy and really don't have enough money to live and work too many hours. and. They've got kids and nappies to change and things like that.
4: The market is amoral, right? Not immoral, but amoral. Uh, The market just provides what people desire. Um, And there's very little evidence of companies going around and telling us or convincing us to buy things that we don't need because it's actually us who's making their choices. So if you say that the market makes the wrong choices and you sort of like blame it on something abstract like... The markets or corporations or capitalism, you're saying very strange things because we are part of this system. And really, the market is a mechanism to connect people and fulfill their desires. So if the market makes the wrong choice, it's not the market who is to blame, but the people who operate in the market. And that's you and me. My name is Richard Toll. I'm a professor of economics at the University of Sussex. I mostly work on the economics of energy, environment and climate. If you just follow the newspapers, you either get one of two messages. Either climate change is not real, it's all a hoax, uh, or climate change is an impending catastrophe that we're all going to die within the next 10 years unless we do something. Neither of these two positions is supported at all by... Uh, any evidence. We know that the world has warmed, we know that the most likely explanation is uh, greenhouse gases. uh, For this there's no reason to assume uh, that we will be uh, carbon neutral anytime soon so climate change can reasonably be expected to continue. Anybody who understands the way the whole system operates
2: would say. Are we talking about the environmental system or the financial system?
4: Uh, It's actually an interaction between the two.
2: Economist Richard Toll raises two important points in his analysis of the environmental situation. The first is that depending on which newspaper we read, and by abstraction our political leanings, we are more or less likely to think of climate change as an immediate threat. The second is that climate change is perpetuated by the way our industrial systems interact with our economic systems, which in turn begs the question, who exactly is it that Laura and I have come to protest against? The author Naomi Klein has written that a destabilised climate is the cost of deregulated global capitalism, its unintended yet unavoidable consequence. And in this respect, the issue of climate change does seem to exaggerate a dichotomy in the way we respond to it as a social crisis. Polarising those that doubt the efficacy of the global marketplace to solve the very problems it can be considered responsible for, against those that believe that the lifeblood of any positive change begins with necessary investment and economic growth. Accordingly, direct action is rarely tolerant of those that adopt a long-term economic solution to what is understood to be an immediate and present catastrophe. Richard Tolligan
4: So we've now had 25 years of a particular type of climate policy. It uh, essentially amounts to exaggerated claims about the seriousness of climate change, as well as downplaying the costs of policy. 25 years have not led to substantial greenhouse gas emission reduction. So that would suggest that it's time to try something new and different. I mean, the environmental movement seems to be stuck in sort of this broken record, right? I mean, last time we raised the alarm didn't work, so let's raise the alarm again and hopefully it'll work this time. It's sort of Einstein's definition of insanity, right? Trying the same thing over and over again and hoping that the result will be different.
2: A charge that is labelled against yourself by a number of people is that you're a climate change denier. So I just wanted to say that out loud and to see what Mm -hmm. your considered response to that is.
4: I, I mean, this whole term denier is a way of creating an us versus them. Um, and it is a means of marginalizing people in the public debate, right? That uh, some people's opinions are undesirable and therefore they need to be called the wits, right? If people would do a little bit of research, they would know that our 1992 paper was the first to attribute global warming to greenhouse gas emissions in a statistical, statistically rigorous way. Uh, so the idea that I somehow deny that CO2 is responsible for warming is just factually incorrect. It's actually the opposite. So anybody who argues that I am against climate policy simply should check uh, their facts, right? And a lot of those people who make such claims have never done anything in their lives to actually reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So anybody who argues that I'm a climate denier or a climate change denier or a climate policy denier should simply look at uh, Google and do his bloody homework.
1: So, we are in in Paris, France, in Aubervilliers, and we are headed towards the ZAC, which is the Climate Action Zone Centre.
2: Although it's clear that the concept of direct action is both an inflammatory and divisive term, exactly what constitutes an authentic direct act is unclear. Due to the Paris terrorist attacks on the 13th of November, 2015, A climate protest that was estimated to attract 700,000 people was made illegal as the French government announced the city in a state of emergency. Arriving the day before the protest was to take place, Laura and I were to attend a briefing at the Action Zone, or ZAC Center, an operation set up by a coalition of NGOs with the objective to organise and prepare those that had still travelled to Paris in order to express their opinion about the political management of climate change.
4: Everything
1: that I've been describing to you is the maximum penalties that can be given, and they are rare and um, also depend on your existing criminal records. So we we went downstairs to the action training. The information that they gave us was how to behave if you are arrested or if you um, are the victim of police brutality.
5: Good afternoon. Once again, I want to thank the people of France and President Hollande for their extraordinary hospitality. Uh, Hosting nearly 200 nations is an enormous task for anybody. Uh, but to do so just two weeks after the terrorist attacks here is a remarkable display of resolve.
1: So um, there, were, there were a few hundred people in the room. There were two large rooms side by side, conducting the same training because they were both so packed uh, with so many people from all over the world, all different ages, all walks of life. Think carefully about what you take with you and what you leave behind on an action. Don't take any, anything that can be considered illegal, like drugs. Um, don't take anything that can be considered a, a weapon. Make sure that you don't have those kind of things in, in your bag.
5: But here in Paris, we also see the resilience of liberté, égalité, fraternité. And based on my discussions with President Hollande and other leaders, I am confident that we can continue building momentum
1: also had some medics on hand to talk us through what to do if we were sprayed with pepper spray or tear gas was released. Does it scare you,
2: the idea of needing to know how to fend off a police pattern? No, not really. You're hardcore. (laughs) The idea that these two speeches were happening on the same day further illustrates the divide between the immediacy of direct action and the rhetoric of long-term policy. It also points to the fact that whether it be a politician, an economist or an activist, our experience of democracy is often a matter of choosing the speeches that we wish to hear and following the personalities that we feel can be trusted the most. And in this sense, those that have travelled to Paris in defiance of the ban on protesting are seeking to express their views with an intensity and conviction which is felt to be absent in many of their politicians. I had the opportunity to talk with the much respected broadcaster, David Attenborough, about reconciling some of these difficult issues.
0: The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Absolutely powerful. Yeah.
2: David's career has made him for many an authority on the workings of the natural world. A man that understands better than most what it means to both be listened
0: to and believed. Yes, I'll, I'll read that. Okay, thank you. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, The falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the centre cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. The um, classic
2: Attenborough intonation. (laughs) I'm interested in who who we choose to lead us, who we choose to listen to. I think it was 2012 you were voted one of the most trusted men in the UK
0: no that's Ill- Ill- illusory I mean that's just um, and you can you could say I mean if you want to denigrate and uh, and why and one should have been now again um, that simply means that I uh, have been rather skilful at uh, avoiding controversy I mean I'm I, I feel shifty about that but an, During my BBC career, however, it was a matter of principle. They were technical people who were responsible for getting people who had opinion, who had authority, and giving them the facility. But it was not your view, um, and that was a very strict thing.
2: How much agency do you think the individual has in responding to climate change as opposed to the responsibility of, of governments?
0: Well, I think there's a continuum, um, and, uh, and it would be terrible if there was a schism between those two things. I mean, go- actions of governments should be, be reflecting the actions of change in the, in the electorate. Um, that's what democracy is about anyway. The question is, is, how informed can the electorate be? And the answer is that it can't be all that one informed, and that uh, so that somewhere in the in the middle of that continuum, there has to be an equation in which someone says, "Well, I don't understand what he's talking about, but I think he's a good bloke," uh, and that's not a bad basis on uh, for for democratic votes. Because if you started to ask me about the complexities of economic theory, I will have to tell you I surrender. I don't. I don't understand. They're not simple questions, but an awful lot has to be taken on trust.
2: Do you yourself do things that? the rest of us uh, to like recycle and um...
0: yes uh, and and um, but only out of a kind of um, well as a ritual really I mean I, I do it very carefully I mean you know I fish out little bits of plastic and think oh that can't go into the paper and put uh, whether or not our crews take the stuff away and put it all in the same bin I don't know they could well be but uh, no I certainly do those things
2: So, it is the 12th of December, 2015. Mm -hmm. Um, We are sat in a small, very typical French cafe, right in the middle of Paris. It is now, what, 9.30? It's nearly 10. It's nearly 10 (laughs) o'clock. There has been a resolution, apparently agreed upon, last night by all of the summit delegation about what actions should be carried out. As concerning greenhouse gases in the environment, uh, that's going to be unveiled at 11.30. Do you have much faith in these leaders to come up with something spectacular today? I mean, this is is this the moment in which everything changes?
1: I mean, I, I feel like we've been here before. I, I feel like um, there have been a lot of these conferences and debates, and there's often a big greenwash at the end of it, and... It's declared a great success after difficult talks, but then the emissions, the carbon emissions, do not ever seem to reduce. And countries don't ever seem to really sign up to any kind of conditions where they'd be held accountable on the, at an international level. I, I don't have a lot of faith, in all honesty, in, in our world leaders.
2: How important is direct action, whatever that does or doesn't mean?
1: So, I mean, I think it's, it's important for as many people as possible to, to come to protest like, like these and show that we do have a voice as the people.
2: So what's the significance of the red tulip and uh, also the red lines?
1: I think the line symbolizes drawing a line under our previous carbon emitting activity and a flower is so that we can uh, place the red tulips on the road, in a line, as a memorial to those who've died as a result of climate change.
2: What do you hope to see today? What do you hope to achieve?
1: I think I think we need to make as, as much noise as possible, really, about this issue, and um, I would like to see um, the media and the world leaders paying attention to the message of the people, which is that we won't, we won't stand for this. It must stop for the future of our planet. people here um, with red umbrellas all wearing red and holding red tulips or red flowers, wearing red hats red ribbons in their hair everyone's chanting Um, there's music, there's samba bands um, and there's a huge long red line of material all the way down the centre of the road
6: Contesting legitimacy of what governments do. I think that's absolutely vital. When governments say we're serious about climate change, we take these responsibilities seriously, and then they keep opening more and more coal-fired power plants or expanding airports like Heathrow, someone has to contest that and say enough's enough, or to draw a line in the sand, or to try and protect people that are going to be affected by these expansions. So that that sort of resistance and trying to keep more fossil fuels in the ground you know the coal in the hole or the oil in the soil as as activists like to say is absolutely vital and that often runs against what states are trying to do that's about protesting sometimes illegally and i think that sort of thing is is hugely important Uh, my name is peter newell i'm professor of international relations at university of sussex i think it's another school of thought that the the scale of this is just so overwhelming um, there's a book by Clive Hamilton called Requiem for a Species which sort of argues that, that people are disempowered by the, by the scale of what we're facing, partly by the, the time frames but also perhaps some of the more apocalyptic visions of, of what might happen. It seems so otherworldly that it's hard to connect that with, with the here and the now and our role within these broader you know, geophysical processes. It's just so difficult to get your head around the scale of what's going on, both you know, in terms of the causation and the complex patterns of um, interactions between human behaviour and ecological processes, but also these very complex lines of responsibility. I mean, that's where the debate really intensifies about who bears most responsibility and therefore whether the right approach is to sort of target individuals and our own behaviour and consumption patterns or whether it's about bigger structures of, you know, how the economy is organised, how infrastructures are laid down, etc. So, again, around responsibility you can understand some of the the caution and the confusion, if you like, about about what's going on and where responsibility lies.
2: OK, we're outside the Eiffel Tower. The mood here is absolutely ridiculous. Um, you've got polar bears in bras uh, you've got all number of placards and banners drums obviously which you can hear people generally having a good time whether this uh, stops the burning of fossil fuels and the increasing of carbon emissions I have no idea quite frankly but people are looking good and they're wiggling a lot And uh, everyone's extremely friendly. And various different colours. There's a woman that's quite blue over there. There's a pink woman. A lot of people with green face paint on. Uh, There's a man with some kind of space trumpet attached to his derriere. There's a monkey. Uh, Who else we got? We got two of every animal basically come into the uh, Noah's Ark of Eiffel Tower ready to swim into the future of a decarbonised economy let's move out of the way as somebody's writing on the floor so big question is does this in any way reduce greenhouse gas emissions
1: I think it raises awareness um, which in turn can help to turn the tide which is what we're really trying to do here today I think it's also going to be a really a good, a good way to motivate people to get involved in further actions.
3: Uh, for me, the climate change is the issue of equality.
1: Uh, climate change uh, to me means a very negative thing, but actually an opportunity and something that will propel us towards a better future. Climate change, Um, is an opportunity, but it's also a massive threat and could end up entrenching those power inequalities and further disadvantaging the most disadvantaged people.
6: Well, the issues about climate change, to me, are really to do with the industrialised countries and governments and corporations not caring about what kind of world they leave behind when they've made their wealth for the privileged few. And we all have to learn to live much more within the planet's means
2: Talking to people at the protest, it was clear that what concerns many is the issue of economic inequality and how this relates to smaller disempowered communities. And that reconciling concepts of the global with the local is an apparent crucial aspect of the mobilized environmental movement.
7: When it comes down to it, like communities are the strongest things we have. Um, and putting more power and giving more power to those communities to, to utilize their, uh, their resources and how best to uh, structure things I think would be, would be in our interest. My name is Mike Udema, and I'm a climate and energy campaigner with Greenpeace Canada.
2: Bodies like the World Bank and countless other global entities seem to be gaining more and more relevance, more and more power.
7: How do you reconcile those two positions? It depends sort of who you're talking about i do think that you know while there is a push and i would say that it's a push mostly from folks in power to you know further globalize the world i think that there is a strong push for relocalization and so you have a lot of people that are looking at relocalizing their food supply and and starting to have relationships with farmers and ranchers again
0: The world has become totally aware. I don't say necessarily uh, in aware in the sense they understand what's going on, but they know there's a heck of a lot going on out there uh, and beyond them. Um, I mean, you uh, you go into a wild part of northern Kenya to try and find some really remote place, and a chap turns up and takes out a mobile phone from his from his pocket, and he's on the email, he's on uh, on the net. Our ability to to communicate, uh, or indeed to be aware of those two things, have certainly increased beyond imagination over the last thirty years. So that has transformed things, uh, and, and both, I suppose, good and bad. But but it certainly transformed things.
7: So
1: climate change, to me, means what capitalism is doing to all human beings and all of nature on this beautiful precious planet that we have and it's an extremely dangerous situation that's happening to this generation, to me, to my family, to my friends and it's up to us to stop it and we have to, we have to convince, we have to either convince the governments to do something extremely massive or we really have to take the power out of the governments because they're not doing what we need them to do. And that's because capitalism is the economic system and that
0: is what needs to change. Pulling down economic models is a fairly drastic thing. I mean, if you think about the French Revolution pulling down uh, an economic model, it did, but it also chopped off the heads of quite a lot of innocent people. Um, I think the uh, solution, which is that you actually use the economic system Um, to achieve your own ends by producing energy uh, in a way that is much cheaper than energy that's based on carbon.
2: The final draft of the Paris Agreement, which had been released that morning, stands testimony to the fact that 195 countries unanimously agreed to keep global warming lower than 1.5 degrees. However... The exact mechanisms and accountability that will bring this goal to fruition is a point of contention for many people that speculate over the relationship between carbon, governments and economic growth. Following the protest, Laura and I took refuge in one of the many Parisian bars to further discuss the purpose of direct action, as well as her continuing involvement in the environmental movement.
1: One of the events that happened during the day, uh, just towards the end, we were having some sort of rousing, rabble rousing, singing of indigenous songs, and with some cyclists who'd cycled all the way to Paris from Brighton, part of Brighton Climate Action Network. And um, one of the uh, street theatre clowns, um, who we've been seeing throughout the day, came up and announced that global warming has been cancelled, it's official. (laughs) And everyone cheered. (laughs) And uh, the clown left. It it was quite a good point that just coming to a a march doesn't fix everything. So um, I think for me the real question is what, what do you do now to actually affect change? One of the things that inspired me to come to this march was reading the Naomi Klein book, This Changes Everything. One of her conclusions in the book is that we ought to be coming together as community cooperatives and setting up energy cooperatives to get onto renewables. So that's something I'd really like to talk to people about, whether we can do that in our hometown.
2: The following morning, I got an early train back to London whilst Laura stayed behind in Paris for a few days to enjoy the city. Tired and with a lot to process, I watched Naomi Klein board the train in front of me and realised that I was going to drive myself crazy if I didn't summon up the courage to ask her for an interview. Hi there. Very sorry to interrupt. Are you Naomi Klein? You are. Um, I feel really uh, embarrassed doing this, but um, uh, I'm Will. Yeah, you've obviously been at the uh, summit. Yeah. Despite the fact that she was obviously looking for some quiet time with her family, she graciously agreed to give me a 10-minute interview. So I would like to both thank and apologise to Naomi for her contribution in the conclusion of this episode.
5: My name's Naomi Klein. I'm an author. My latest book is called This Changes Everything, about climate change. I mean, I think everybody has different definitions of direct action, um, but... There has definitely been a shift in the climate movement over the past four years in particular. Some of the most tangible victories of the climate movement in recent years Pipelines blocked, fracking stopped, Arctic drilling you know, in Alaska uh, at least temporarily stopped. It's not only because of direct action. It's also because of um, you know, mass marches, you know, peaceful demonstrations, court challenges, and lobbying. But I think it's a really important piece.
2: Do you think it's fair to call um, the summit a success?
5: I, I don't think we live in a time where those kinds of simple labels apply. I mean, that the, the, the getting 1.5 in the text was a victory for um, island nations who fought very, very hard for that to happen. Um, does it mean they are now going to survive? No, it doesn't mean that at all, and they, and they know that. Um, and, the, and in the text, it, it notes with grave concern that there is... Um, a massive gap between those targets, whether 1.5 or 2 degrees, and what governments have brought to these negotiations in terms of their intended national uh, emission reductions, um, what are known as INDCs. So those INDCs, if you add them all up together, uh, do not add up to uh, staying within the carbon budget of either 2 degrees or 1.5. It adds up to 3 to 4 degrees, according to Kevin Anderson, who's deputy director of the Tyndall Center. Um, I, I think it's useful to have 1.5 from a campaigning perspective, in the sense that um, we have been using the 2-degree target that was set in Copenhagen as the entire basis of the fossil fuel divestment movement. The entire basis of the fossil fuel divestment movement was taking governments at their word, even though we knew it was disingenuous then, because we knew they weren't doing what it took to get to two degrees, adding up what fossil fuel companies have in their proven reserves, showing that that's five times more carbon than is compatible with two degrees, and now we're going to do the same thing with 1.5. So, you know, it's really about how social movements use those targets, um, because governments have made it absolutely clear that they're unwilling to do what it takes to meet those targets. Thank
2: you. Okay, no problem. The non-legally binding agreement reached at the COP21, and any change it promises to effect in climate policy will be unlikely to impress any of the people that came to protest on the streets of Paris. Yet whilst it can be difficult not to feel such bureaucratic processes lack all conviction, At the very least, such events create a revision of what civic groups can use to meaningfully hold their governments to account. The next Conference of Parties, or COP22, is expected to take place in Morocco in November of 2016. For those demanding immediate change or direct action, this could prove to be too long a wait. Further information about all who featured in this episode can be found at www.theglassbeadgame.co.uk and whilst you're there, why not subscribe at the top right-hand corner of the site to ensure that you get next month's episode which will be an inquiry into privacy and the role of surveillance states. Your presenter for this episode has been Will Hood and the series producer is Rob Alexander. The Glass Bead Game has been brought to you by the School of Global Studies at the University of Sussex and is an Animal Monday production.